according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the days were completed for their purification according to the law of Moses, they took Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, in accordance with the dictate in the law of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Christ of the Lord. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform the custom of the law in regard to him, he took him into his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in sight of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas as we continue our celebration here. This weekend is what's called the Feast of the Holy Family, and if you notice, our readings are filled with great joy, with such joy because there's fruitfulness of family and of life. You first of all have in the first reading Abraham and Sarah, who we know had struggled with infertility for many years, and then finally in their old age, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, God finally gives them a son. And then you've got faithful Mary and Joseph who are bringing their newborn son into the temple to do what God had commanded in the law, to dedicate him to the Lord. And you, they meet Simeon and then Anna, who erupt in praise because Israel had been waiting for, for years, for generations, for this child to finally come. But there's also, if you listen closely, an ominous undertone to our readings. There's dark clouds of pain and, and heartache that lie ahead. 
As our Hebrews reading reminded us, yes, God gave Abraham and Sarah the long-awaited son and then asked Abraham to sacrifice that son. The pious Jewish family come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the place of sacrifice, hinting that the child in their arms is going to be the sacrifice. And they're intercepted by this strange guy named Simeon who takes Jesus from their arms. At first he spoke about comfort and about hope, but then he gave way to controversy and coming tension and sorrow like a sword that was going to pierce his mother's heart. I've been parenting now for almost 24 years, and I ain't done yet. I got a long ways to go still. I certainly do not claim to be an expert, but there is one thing that I believe deeply and guides me as a parent that they are not mine. They are His. And He gives them to us only for a very brief time so that the most important thing that I can do as a parent is then to offer them back to Him. As simple as that sounds, it's also quite painful. And we can fight it sometimes and resist it. We want to cling to our children and and not let go. Why do we do that? Was it when the pill and other forms of birth control became so available to us that we actually got the idea that we're in control? That we choose if and when and how many children we want? Rather than receiving them as gifts from the Lord, surprises, When we really do want them, we have that technology to make them, even design them. And when we really don't want them, well, we want that choice too. I don't know how many of you are Hunger Games fans. The latest movie installment just came out. And we watch such things with morbid fascination. On the one hand, we're we're entertained by this idea and yet also horrified and disgusted that there could be such a society that would kill its own children. And yet we can't look in the mirror and see that we have killed 65 million of our own children so that we could keep our society and our lifestyle the way that we want it. We are the capital. What I'm driving at is that all of this warps our mindset and our thinking that we had them only when we wanted them, and now they are ours to do with what we want. We want them to follow in our footsteps and to fulfill our dreams rather than follow Jesus and fulfill His dreams for them. We want to make them into our image instead of God's. Imagine with me, if you could for a moment, that you could give your kid the perfect life. They're born with good looks, they're smart, they're talented. You give them the music lessons that make them into a rock star. You put them on every club team and they become the MVP of that winning team. And that gets them a scholarship, maybe even the pros. Or you give them the education that lands them the seven-figure salary. Or, you know what, all of the above, rock star, MVP, and CEO, they've got it all. 
and you sprinkled in enough religion and some spirituality to make them a good person. They're well-adjusted, they're well-liked. They marry the perfect, good-looking spouse, which means they give to you two even more perfect, even better-looking grandchildren who are polite and they're well-behaved. They've got the house, the cars, the vacation property. They want for nothing. They go through life unscathed. There's no tragedies, no marital problems, no rebellious children. Let's be honest. Aren't these the dreams that occupy our hearts and drive our parenting efforts? Let me burst all of our bubbles. Such a life doesn't exist. That's the lie. But even if it did and they lived to a ripe, old, healthy age, but then got to the very end and didn't know Jesus, well, now we've lost them forever. I don't think anyone, especially people who are here in church, set out to do this. I think it's that we've become slowly seduced and convinced by a self-centered, materialistic, success-driven, pleasure-seeking, fame-craving, mind and heart-numbing culture into thinking that this is what makes a good family. Then we shouldn't want a good family. We should want a holy family. Like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That's not what I'm getting at. But what it does mean is that we are going to pursue God and make Him first. It's hard to let go of control. If, as I was talking about before, your parenting technique is that I'm going to give them back to God, then well, we may fear losing them. I mean, look what he asked Abraham to do. And what he ultimately didn't ask Abraham to do is what he did ask Mary to do. It's actually what he himself, our father, did to offer up his only son. It's the end of our Hebrews reading that shows us the way and helps us out. Listen to these words again. By faith, Abraham, when he was put to the test, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was ready to offer his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. He reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead, and he received Isaac back as a symbol. The point is, if, if God's promises were supposed to go through Isaac, but then God wanted to take Isaac from Abraham, how was he going to fulfill his promises? And what does it say? It just says, Abraham believed by faith. He trusted. Which isn't just blind obedience. He puts everything in the Father's hands. Even his son. If we offer our children back to him, if we put them in his hands. He doesn't take them from us. We don't lose them. Even if he takes them early from us in this life, which some of us have experienced, he gives them back to us in a greater way. 
He makes them into saints and brings them into an even greater and a more perfect family called the, the communion of saints. And as we go through life, even when they don't always follow his ways as they can be prone to do and break our hearts, we can actually find strength in knowing that, guess what, I'm not in control here. They're his, which means we can pound on the door of heaven and say, God, that kid you gave me, he needs your help. And we do that putting them into his hands, knowing that he loves them even more than we do. See, this is what I'm driving at. That's what we do. We put them in his hands. We offer them back to him. Okay, so how do we actually do that? Well, first of all, we baptize them. And then we fulfill the promises that we make at baptism, which means you try to turn your life into something of a little Nazareth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the Scripture really doesn't tell us a whole lot about Jesus growing up years in Nazareth. The one thing we know is that they went to temple, as we heard today. That's the first thing. The first and the highest priority in the carpenter's home was worship. And the second thing is that the silence about Nazareth suggests that the Holy Family's home life was probably pretty normal, a normal Jewish home with synagogue and prayers and a daily routine that operated with confidence that that God was guiding every little part of their lives. Now, to do this, it takes some effort. I'm going to ask four questions tonight. First, what do your kids hear? When my kids were little, sometimes people would say to us, oh, your kid, pastor, your kids, they, don't just, they just know their Bible stories so well. That must be because they're pastor's kids. I don't think so. I think it was because every night we read a little story from our children's Bible and said prayers with them. And if, by the way, you thought that was just so pious and peaceful in the Milky Home, let me tell you what, it was pandemonium most of the nights, as bedtime routine can often be. My point is, though, those of us who are raising the littlest of ones right now, it takes some effort, but it's really not hard to do. Second, what do your kids see? Is the center of your home the entertainment center with giant flat screen TVs and video games? Or is your home worship-centered with a crucifix and good religious art? Do they see you praying and reading your own scriptures? Third, what do you talk about? Do anger and sarcasm and crude language and joking set the tone? Or grace and forgiveness and encouragement and good humor? Does Jesus flavor your conversations? Do you talk about him? Better yet, do you talk with him in prayer? And the last thing is, finally, are you home together? Doing things like eating family meals, having fun together, and resting together? Or are your weeks overcommitted with activities to the point of exhaustion, and every spare little void is filled by a screen? Is there actually space in your weekly routine for Jesus? 
None of these things is actually hard. But it does take effort, intentionality. And by the way, you're not alone if you're in this season of life. If your child happens to be between the age of two years old and eighth grade, we have an entire congregation that is behind you and that wants to support you throughout the week through our Lutheran school. All of this is to say, there is only one real goal in life, friends. That whatever our end finally does come, like Simeon, you can say, your child can say, your grandchildren can say, every child in this parish can say, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My friends, would you just take a moment alongside of me and pray for our families? Some of us are actively parenting now. Some of our kids are grown, but you're always still a mom or a dad. So whether it's for kids or grandkids or for the children of our parish, would you pray for our families?